Pierre de Andremont stood at the rail of the ship that floated motionless in the stagnant brown water of Bananas Harbor. The heat, even in the shade, surrounded him like invisible steam. He mopped his face and neck with a soggy brown handkerchief. When dry, the handkerchief matched his khaki uniform, but now it was the same color as the sweat stains under his arms. He watched, holding his breath as the cargo net swung over the side and slowly lowered the first crate to the dugout canoe. From the markings, he knew that crate contained his custom-made Mestermeyer elephant gun, a thirty thirty rifle, a 12-gauge double-barrel shotgun, plus the camp tent. Of all the boxes, that one was the most valuable. He silently scolded himself for not distributing the guns among the other containers. The rest of them contained pots and pans, camp stoves, cots and bedding, and everything else one needed to set up house in the Congo, but they could all over time be replaced, whereas the guns were all one of a kind and of the finest quality. As the crate started to be lowered, his hands grasped the rail as though he could, by the strength of his grip and sheer willpower, prevent it from falling into the muddy river. While the natives in the canoe shouted incomprehensible instructions, a man on deck gave directions with hand signals to the winch operator who could not see the canoe. When the crate was close enough, two natives reached up, touched, and then took hold of it and guided it down into the dugout while the dozen or so other men in the long canoe scrambled toward the ends, rocking the canoe precariously to make room for the box. It was too wide for the canoe. It settled in place long ways with one corner pointed toward the bottom of the canoe and two other corners hanging over the side. Once in the canoe, they struggled, trying to get the cargo net from under it. The dugout was too narrow for two men to stand side by side, and the box was too heavy for one man to lift it in with just one hand and struggle with the net with the other. They pulled and tugged, shouting and cursing at each other, the round-bottom bolt rolling back and forth with each movement. With each roll of the canoe, Pierre's breath caught in his throat, certain the native would lose his balance and the canoe would tip, dumping its precious cargo into the water to settle into the mud bottom forever lost. They finally unhooked the net and, standing up in the bottom of the dugout, picked up their long paddles and headed for shore, ignoring the shouts of the loading crew who wanted the net returned. The next canoe came alongside to get the next crate, but the crew refused to lower another crate until the first canoe brought the net back. He stood watching as two more wooden crates and two steamer trunks containing his clothing and personal effects were taken ashore. Harry Hillman came and stood next to him as the last of Pierre's hand baggage was lowered to the waiting canoe. "'I wish you well,' Hillman said in his halting French. "'Merci,' Pierre said, resenting Hillman, who stood there in his perfectly pressed, glaringly white uniform not showing a drop of perspiration.' Perspiration was unseemly in a gentleman, and Pierre's tendency to do so easily had always been a source of embarrassment for him. The only things that might be considered out of place with Hillman were the curls of blonde hair that hung below his peaked cap with its spotlessly white top. So, that's banana. I've never been here before, Hillman said, looking toward the shore. We've put in at Boma a couple of times, but sailed right by this place. Ungodly... Awful-looking place, isn't it? Banana had at one time been important as a slave trading port, but was not much of anything now. 
Pierre and his boxes were all that would be going ashore from this ship. The ship that had brought him from Calais was an English vessel of the Elder Dempster Lines. The other five passengers were English on their way to South Africa. With only Pierre debarking here, the ship was not bothering to dock. Looking across the water to the decrepit docks, Pierre could understand their hesitancy. "'I'll be glad to get back out to sea,' Hillman said. "'I didn't think any place on earth could be this hot.' Pierre said, taking the Wolseley-style helmet off his head. He stood with his helmet under his left arm while his right hand held the already wet handkerchief with which he wiped the perspiration from his face and the lower edges of his wavy brown hair. The pressure from the band of the helmet left a plastered-down ring of hair around his head. Everything about Pierre looked wilted. The khaki uniform, pressed and crisp-looking when he had put it on four hours ago while still in the open ocean.